Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. I just, I just, I just heard we're filling gaps in the ad. <laughs> <laughs> filling gaps in people's portfolios. That's what we're doing. Anyway, happy Friday, Cheers, guys. everybody. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. And welcome. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I think Thanks Rodrigo's going to join us, but he's got some, some technical difficulties yeah. or Inter, something. Interweb, interweb issues. Yeah. Well, exactly. I guess we can get started by just telling everybody that uh, this is not investment advice of any kind in it. You shouldn't get investment advice on YouTube at Friday afternoon from three guys, soon to be four guys. And uh, yeah, go get real advice from real people, not the people on this show. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but we're going to have a wide range better, of conversation. I'm just, yeah, getting out there further and further. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is going to be a fun conversation. A lot of, oh, yeah, definitely. A lot of reality coming into this. Exactly, uh, so yeah. you want to introduce Chris or Chris, you want to introduce yourself? And yeah, Chris, you better introduce yourself, and, man. You've got a pretty yeah. um, interesting career arc and I don't think I'd do anywhere near it justice. So go for cool, it. Cool. Yeah. So uh, I'm, my name's Chris Abdelmasia. I um, mostly, you guys probably all know me from hanging out on Twitter and writing uh, Moon Tower, which is a weekly email that go, I send out every Sunday and otherwise writing on my blog, which where I mostly talk about trading and options kinds of material. But uh, yeah, my I started trading 20, uh, in 2000. I came out of college and I went uh, straight into uh, Susquehanna, which is a large options derivatives trading firm. And uh, I spent uh, between Susquehanna and then going out on my own, I spent 12 years 
uh, on the floor in New York, uh, all the floor, pretty much all the floors in New York. I was on the, started on the Amex, went to the Nizy, went to the NYMEX, went to the, uh, then got memberships. While I was on the NYMEX, I was in that building and I got memberships on uh, the ICE. I got one on the, uh, sorry, the COMEX. And, and the ICE was the NYBOT before that, that kind of <clears throat> over there. And then, uh, and then after 12 years of being in New York and being on the floor, I moved to San Francisco where I joined a hedge fund uh, where I built their commodity derivatives platform. And that was uh, spent nine years there. I left the business or I left trading a year ago. And uh, right now I'm just kind of hanging out and which is why you see me on Twitter more often and I have, have extra free time and all that. And uh, so that's, that's kind of who I am. I, and yeah, I basically did one thing for my entire career. I traded options. So, uh, you know, I was telling, uh, Adam and Mike before this, the reason I even went online, went to Twitter and all that was, uh, to learn. I didn't know anything about investing and I probably popped on Twitter about sort of lurking probably six years ago or so, or five years ago. And I really didn't know anything about investing. Um, I only knew a very narrow thing, which was trading options, which was basically a game the, w the way I kind of saw it. And uh, didn't really do a great job of linking it back to thinking about investing in general. And then as I started learning from all pe like people like yourselves, all these awesome people on Twitter that are full of knowledge, I started listening to podcasts and then started connecting dots. And that was what kind of got me into writing. Um, and then once I started writing, I realized, oh, people thought this was a different perspective. So it seemed useful. So I kept doing it. Yeah, it's Love it's it. jarring to hear you say that you spent, was it going on 18 years or so, 16 years or so trading options and, and derivatives? Um, and then you went to Twitter to learn about investing. That's that's a jarring thing to, to hear. Like, and I'm, obviously you were successful enough to be able to, you know, press pause on that career trajectory and, you know, take a step back and, and kind of quasi retire and, and take stock and, and figure out what you want to do next and do some thinking, do some writing. So yeah. maybe what do you mean by, you know, I spent 16 years in markets and then I, I stopped and went to Twitter to learn about investing. People would be curious to hear about that. Oh my God. You have no, it's so it's, it's like super embarrassing actually. I, so other than like my only exposure to stocks for most of the last 20 years was I had put, or at least until I started learning about investing was I would, uh, whatever was in my 401k. So I would max my 401k and, you know, SIG would give us a match and all that. And I would just plow that all into the stock market. And, but otherwise, um, in my mind, I graduated in 2000 and started, you know, right into trading. And I was I said, you know, let me, uh, let me buy a place. That was like, seemed like the, what you're supposed to do with money. So I bought an apartment. That was like the first thing I did. Like, first of all, I didn't really think, I never thought about investing because it wasn't a pressing problem because I, I, I know I want to buy a place. So, okay, so I, this is, this, I want to press plus here because it's this difference between trading and investing. So maybe what needs to happen here is you need 
to define what you mean by investing, right? Because it can, investing can take so many different forms. And, and, and wow. how is it that you spent 16 years trading, but you, that's not what you describe as investing? So what is investing? Yeah, so, um, so investing in my mind is, uh, so it's this thing that happens once you have savings or that, that's like, first of all, that's how I think of it kind of now is investing is I have this like corpus of money. I want it to grow and your time horizon is basically longer. Trading, trading to me is this transactional game. It's like everything I traded had an expiration. So it has got an endpoint. There's a cat, like, like it's almost like if all you did was invest in catalyst driven stuff, that that's what trading sort of is. It's just, I'm going to, I know that there's an endpoint to this. There's going to be some convergence to this. The entire concept of, you know, a PE that could get really large or something that can like, uh, something that would diverge a bunch from intrinsic value. It's like an options. We're going to find out what the value of this thing is going to expire and there's going to be a realized ball and we're going to know the outcome. And so, and, and with a future, it's the same thing. Like a future cannot just trade wherever it wants to. Eventually it has to converge with the spot market, which is a physical market where people are making actual decisions about, you know, am I actually willing to buy this barrel of oil and I, I got to use this barrel of oil and how much I can, I, you know, when I go refine it, how much could I sell it for? Like there's like real economic decisions that have to happen there and there's expirations. So when I think of trading, it's shorter term in nature, more transactional, it's everything's a catalyst. Whereas investing, investing is almost in my mind now, like, uh, like re I almost think it sounds stupid, but reinvesting is probably the better word for it because something could be cheap, but what's opaque to you when you go to buy it is what really matters is, is the internal rate of return on like on, on their projects and how they can deploy capital. Is that going to be true? So sometimes when I think of today, if I think of a stock, Hey, that stock looks cheap. I would actually might flip that in my head and be like, actually, that's an implied low forward rate of return on capital. That's all it is. Like a, a stock that looks cheap is one that has an implied low return in the future. That's, um, so in investing, you really can, the future is like a big part of that payment. I guess if you were to do a discounted cash flow, it's like what, um, those balloon payment at the end or whatever that value is at the end carries a ton of weight in that computation. So it's a completely long-term sort of thinking. And, um, I didn't think like that. I just, I just think of everything as a game. Also, again, it's like, I was really naive. I mean, it's like, again, it's embarrassing. I was really naive. I, I, I really would think like, why would anybody do this? Like <laughs> I could like, in my mind, like I'm looking at getting edge. Like I'm like, uh, you know, this thing's worth two and a quarter and I'm selling it for two and a half. Like this is, I know, I know this is a good trade. I know, you know, I just got to manage the risk on this thing, but I know what the edge is. I'm like, a, I'm like a, uh, a, a, the house in a casino. I thought everybody that's out there investing, why would, why would you do that? I said, this is, this is like, you're, you're a customer. That's and that in my world is like the biggest was like, not to be, not that it's an insult, but a customer is my counterparty and I don't want to be them. So for the most part, I thought of it, I didn't really understand. I didn't connect all the dots. It wasn't until appreciating alpha uh, or edge 
and capacity. It's like, I didn't realize the guys that were running my firm, they were just plowing all their money probably right back into building the firm. But there was ne- nobody ever talked about what those guys or those guys never talked about what they did with their own money. So when I looked out at the rest of the investing world and I said, people are out there trying to earn 10%, like they're suckers. What the heck are you going to do with 10%? What good is that? Um, so it's just super, super naive. I mean, again, it sounds absolutely ridiculous, but I survived like this for a long time, like just not understanding. And I'm not, I wasn't a person who went and read, like I didn't read a ton of investment books or anything like that. I was more concerned with trying to understand how the game was played. Yeah. Mike, you're going to have to chime in here, buddy, because I'm, you yeah, no, no. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's like, I, I think of trading as a business, right? You were running a business mm-hmm. and you're, you're running through the steps to run the business, whatever they are. You've got uh, an opportunity set in front of you. You're trading in that opportunity set and it's an ongoing daily thing. And it's not investing per se, where it's, I'm going to leave the capital to somebody else to do something else with it in some sort of business form where they're going to do the reinvesting. I mean, it, it's it's like sort of like the difference between um, the active business aspect of it versus a passive business aspect of it. You're a passive uh, um, investor, so to speak, leaving activism out, but you're passive to somebody else doing things for you with the capital you provided them. And you're really not having any influence on that business. But the business of trading is a business in of itself. Yeah. That is, that is, you open the store every morning. You got stuff to do. You got, you might have some inventory uh, that you've collected that you've got to clear that you think you're buying lower and selling higher, or the the opposite in a profitable direction. So to me, it's it's an, it's an interesting thing. And then you get into into such narrow knowledge in that space and providing liquidity to markets. And something I'm interested in, like your cohort of 2000, I mean, you were coming into NASDAQ 5000 the first time, mm-hmm. right? And so how was that? Who survived and how did you survive, right? You come into 2000, I imagine everybody around you is, uh, there's all kinds of cohorts that are making lots of money trading, I'm assuming. Yeah. So you come into this, this business, why did it attract you at that, that point? And then how the hell did you survive? Like, how did you t- twist did you just have good mentorship, good coaching? Like, how did you make it through? Because I imagine if you looked at your cohort from that that year, there wouldn't be, were there many surviving traders that started in 2000 with you? So, oh man, that's a, that's a, that's a, it's such a good question. Um, first of all, your analogy of trading as a business, it's 100% spot on. I should have just said that right from the beginning. It's exactly, I mean, there's no better description of it than trading is a business. So it's the kind of thing that one would invest in, but it's not investing. It's actually, it, it is a business. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the going back to my cohort. So if we go back, okay, let's, if we go back to that, it's, it's really amusing because here I have no worldliness about me whatsoever. Right. I'm, I'm going into, uh, into this job. I show up, uh, I show up one morning and they, you know, I get my fingerprints done. There's the bathroom. Now go down to the floor and go stand next to somebody. Like that was day one. Like go stand next to somebody. I go stand next to this trader and he's got all these fancy spreadsheets. By the way, I have never seen Excel at this point. I don't have any skills whatsoever. I know nothing about anything. So uh, I don't even know how Excel works. He's got all these 
workbooks open. There's 20 tabs on each one of them and a million calculations on pricing models and all this stuff. I don't know what's going on. He's like, the booth is, you know, this tiny little thing stinks like man. And he's just like, dude, get out of my way. This whole, it's like the most uncomfortable. That I, even, I, I wanted to quit after the first day. It was absolutely terrible. So, and I didn't know what was going on around me, which was like, this was a bonanza. I mean, this was like, they were, I mean, I was at SIG in 2000. This is a year, they, they were probably, um, you know, the Q's, the Q's pit was, I was on the mezzanine of the Amex. So the Q's, I was in the this one corner and the Q's pit where they traded the just the ETF. That was a big product back then. That was a new product. Huge. That was, yeah, that was, uh, and that was rocking. I mean, rocking. I don't know how many people were standing in that pit. And, you know, you're making, you're making Q's market. These guys are making Q's market, you know, 15 cents wide, right? It's like totally different game. And uh, so this place is, is rocking the first guy they assigned me to to actually go work for like i like i stand there like an ass for a couple days don't know anything and then finally like you know what why don't you go with uh reggie brown reggie no way yeah oh yeah for real so wow. reggie they're like reggie will take you so i'm like so i basically go to clerk for reggie so reggie's standing in the spot in the spiders so spear leads is spear leads is the specialist there Still, that's a rocking pit too. Spider's a big deal. So I'm standing. Reggie's in the pit. He's the biggest dude in the pit. Absolute monster. He's got six capital and he's a monster himself. And like, just the, he's the man, right? And so <laughs> I'm standing like six feet from Reggie. I got my own booth. I got a spreadsheet. Again, I don't know anything about Excel. Um, at this point, I'm just putting in trades. Like Reggie's giving me his trade pads. He's like, you know, a million trades a second, writing them down, throwing the paper at me. I screw up, you know, I was, I had the, you know, eventually as I sort of learn a business, I got the point clerk in Chicago. Um, we had the point clerk in Chicago to do the futures hedges for us. I mean, I remember, you know, Reggie, maybe you'll kill me if I say this, but I remember one time missing a hedge and Reggie came by and like literally like took the phone, was angry, like smacked it against the side. Dude, and Reggie's a big dude. He vaporized the phone. There was nothing, there was like nothing like dust, like dust. And I'm like, I got, where, how do I get a new phone? Like, where, like, like, I need a phone to do my job. Where am I going to get a phone? Dude pops out of the floor with a phone because yeah. right, you know, this happens on a trading floor. It's funny. I literally don't even remember how we got the, how we got the phone. They did it. Uh, I, don't, I, I still don't even remember how we did it. Anyway, we, we ended up um, – so I'm learning Excel. I'm, like, lear literally learning, like, how the cells work. I don't know shit. It's really kind of pathetic. Um, and uh, – but the point was at the time, business was amazing. So how did I survive? It was almost like, how could I not survive? They were crushing it. And we were, we were like, so I got, and I was part of the largest cohort, joke around all the time. It's like, you know, if I tried to get hired today out of college, I probably don't get hired. They were, they, cause they were like, we need warm bodies. We're going to train you and you're going to stand in a pit. And you're going to say me too. Just put your hand up, say me too. It's it, it. I mean, they really did train us, but they could have gotten away with that. There were other firms that were basically just putting anybody with a pulse in the pit, stand there and just do what everybody else does. And you could have made a great living doing that. So for about six months, for about six. Well, even afterwards, <laughs> I mean, it was it was kind of like because, you know, you weren't you were uh, 
you know, you're, you're delta neutral, right? So you didn't really right. care. Okay. And so we were, we were. So you just wanted the volume there. You just wanted the volume, right? It's like yeah. you just want the volume and, 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 and edge market width. Um, so in a sense, uh, my survival, yes, my survival was rare, but it wasn't because of the time. My survival was real rare was because the natural rate of attrition in the business is so high. Um, I even, I mean, every year of my career, I always thought there was the end is soon. The end is soon. I mean, for 21 years, the end was always soon. Now, maybe not the very, very beginning, but I mean, 2003 was a, 2003 was a really, um, was not a very fun market and options that year. I remember, uh, and we were starting to see, you know, I had ended up, I ended up, I got very lucky. I clerked for a very illustrious cast of characters. Everybody that I rotated with, I mean, some of the partners at Jane street were people that I clerked for, you know, people that are big shots now, um, that I got a chance to learn from. And in 2000, we were starting to get, there was more exodus to Jane street. There was a lot of stuff kind of, um, uh, you know, getting scattered around this period of time. And I didn't know anything. All I knew was that the people that were older than me, they were making tons of money for, you know, there was like, they're 24 and they're making lots of money. And I just thought this was normal. And I think the big thing I ended up learning over the next few years, I witnessed a lot of changes in the market firsthand. I was, uh, you know, when I first got down there, we were still in fractions. So I watched decimalization happen. When we got down there, it was just when options went multi-list and that meant going to four exchanges, right? Like they were, before that, everything was a single single list. And then, and then the ISE came around a few years later and that was sort of like a big, that was kind of a big disruption when the ice kind of came online. But the, the uh, so I kind of witnessed that. And then in 2003, uh, I ended up moving over to the New York Stock Exchange where I was a specialist. Well, I was a broker for a year. So we did this thing where at SIG, where um, they had a brokerage unit that they had acquired a couple of years earlier. And I had this idea of like, hey, let's take people that we've properly trained in like decision-making and trade, like decision-making and trading and expectancy. Take Let's take that people with that mindset and bring them over to the New York Stock Exchange and see if we can trade uh, underlying because it, it, we're a derivatives trading firm, but can, like, can we go there and trade underlying? So we would do it on behalf of clients. So we would have clients and you'd go in and you, you know, you try to make better decisions for the clients. Like if they gave you a not held order, some clients would never do that. They were like limit order, or they, you know, give you very strict instructions. I want to be, you know, common kind of orders back then. I want to be 10% of the volume, you know, I'll buy more, I'll buy more on a print, that kind of thing. But they would, uh, but on a not held order, it was like, okay, let's let's see if we can do better. Uh, I learned a lot about brokerage. Is that what I learned is that you can't win. That's that's what I learned about that business. Is that um, you know, you're short. You're basically short an option. Like if I do better for you, you're like marginally happy, but you don't. You only remember when I miss when I miss uh, when I miss it. So like over the long run, I think I'm doing better for you, but you don't remember that. So that's a losing proposition to be a broker. I, I didn't, I don't like the way that felt. Um, and then I spent a couple months being a specialist in ETFs at the time. FEZ was the big one was a, was Fez. kind of 
the Fez, Fez was the hot thing. There was Fez and Foo was the other one, but Foo didn't get that much volume, but Fez was kind of hot. And Fez was uh, a pretty complicated one to price. I remember that was, uh, and I kind of kind of got thrown into that. I took over for another trader, got kind of thrown into the fire on that one. Did that, I did that for about six months and that was before I went over to the, and then I went over to the NYMEX. That was another crazy, like it was just like, my career was like one thing after the other as far as like being right in the middle of disruption in a way, because when I went to the NYMEX, when I first got over there, I was, um, I got I go into the, you know, we kind of figure things out a little bit, like get set up, go into options pit, we meet a, you know, get a, get a clerk in the futures pit that you're going to hand signal your order to. And like, I have to learn the hand signals. And that was a total mess of another kind because now I'm, now I'm in this pit and all the guys around me and there's a hundred, I'm shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of dudes. I'm six one and I'm a, you know, average to small guy in there. I mean, I got, I'd be a friend you know, the guy next to me with an offensive lineman for Nebraska. Like I'm around huge dudes and you're trying to, uh, and they're buddies already with the guys that are going to be doing the futures orders. So I'm like the new guy. And also, you know, you're like, a, you're this firm Susquehanna and you're going into this place where most of the people are locals, meaning they're trading their own money. The locals are trading their own money. So you were going over there and they were not especially happy to see a large firm kind of go in there. So you kind of, you've got everything going against you in a way. Um, and people are still trading on paper sheets. So, uh, you know, basically we get run over on every options trade I did. Everything I got filled on was like mostly what other people didn't really want, or I wasn't going to get my futures off, or I was the last, you know, the brokers hint, you know, Broker comes in. He's like, you know, I got, I got, you know, a thousand of these for sale. He divvies them up, whatever. Maybe I get a 30 lot out of the thousand or something like that. I go to hedge it. I'm the last person in the queue to get hedged because the futures guys buddies with everybody else. So it was right at the cusp of things going electronic. And we were built for that. We were, we were built, you know, like we got, we were some of the early guys that had got tablets in the pit. We were, we were ready. Um, you know, we had, we had partnered with, um, we were using this vendor. I, you know, I kind of, I even helped them like trouble. Like I noticed their gamma calculations were wrong on the, on the, on the software. I was like, Hey, I think you guys should actually do it like this. And, you know, we were sort of early adopters of the technology and, between that and things going electronic, which would level the playing field, we were able um, to sort of break in. So it's, it was kind of, and it was a good deal to go over there because they were kind of like, look, we've tried to go over there twice in the past. It's never worked. This time, this was the beginning of the commodity super cycle stuff. Oil was on its way to, you know, this was 2005. So, you know, oil was probably maybe 30, 40 bucks at the time on its way up. And, uh, we were able to sort of break in this time. And, and Susk was like, they were super cool about it. You know, go over there, try not to lose a ton of money. Just try to get some traction. Um, you know, the long run, we think this would be a good place to be. And, you know, we figured it out, you know, probably within a year, we figured it out. The, my other guy I went over there with, he went into nat gas, I went into oil. That's how we split the duties. And then we started expanding the business after that. So, uh, that was well, the transition was, was from call to electronic and 
you guys were like, you guys were kind of built for electronic, right? That was where, that was where the new edge was. And so you were, you were primed for that. And you went from the guys who had the edge being those who were in the pit, who were big, who were aggressive, who had the relationships, who got the first order fills, et cetera, to being the guys who were the smartest, the fastest with the analytics, had the pricing edges, et cetera, right? That's kind yeah, of the transition that you're describing? Ultimately, ultimately. I mean, it took it took time to, to characterize it like that. And there were everybody, a lot of firms were going down there and they were co-evolving while we were evolving. So it was, mm-hmm. things were, it, it's the story of this business. Things were getting, going to more institutional. When I came in there, you know, this was a, this was a, when I was on that, when I first started down there, I remember there was a lot of misfits. You know, I was out on the floor. There's a lot of misfits. The guys, really interesting characters. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the best chess player in the United States, like some of the best backgammon players. I mean, you were talking about people with eidetic memories. Like there was a lot of X-Men down there, but were kind of misfits in a way. Like they were not the kind of people that would, be able to hold down sort of probably a regular job or um, and the floor kind of welcomed this. It was open to it. It was really no, honestly, like if you were, if you were fast, if you were, if you were, if you were fast and had like enough um, and you were honest in the sense that you would stand up to your markets, the brokers could trust that when they traded with you, you were good for it. Um, you didn't flake on trades. You didn't, you know, you just didn't play a lot of games with them. If you were a stand-up kind of trader and you were fast, you, you would, uh, you were able to break in. And it really didn't, it didn't matter. Nothing else mattered about you. I mean, you're, 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 you're that was it. It was super um, egalitarian in that sense. So, uh, but the story was things were getting more institutional. Everything about the markets became more institutional. The banks really started paying attention to the options business after 2000. I mean, SIG probably made, you know, four or five X what they thought their expectancy was for the year going into 2000. It was transformative I mean, transformed everything as far as, um, I mean, if you remember, it was only a little while later that, uh, Spear Leeds got bought by five billion by Goldman, right? Like they had a they they had already there was already that they had already bought Hull and then they bought Spear Leeds for five billion, which was a, an insane insane print, like unheard of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at that time for businesses like this. I mean, uh, so that was um, as things as the banks got into it, everything got more competitive. The bank traders started putting up options flow themselves. The banks started taking risk. They said, you know what, I don't want to be just a middleman anymore taking my order. Yeah, they were putting their balance sheets to work. Yeah. That's right. And that all that all that changed. So I was in the middle of all those things changing, but I was I didn't fully understand it all at the time. I was too green. So I didn't I, I didn't understand it. So it was like I feel like my first like lots of years was me just being naive and just being in the middle of it and having an inkling that things were changing, not fully understanding it. So when did you when did you come of age and start to actually see the puzzle pieces move around? Actually, kind of, you know, the varnish is off a little bit. You're in the game and you're Neo actually the matrix. seeing you're yeah. seeing the moving pieces. When did when did that when did that sort of revelation occur? And I know that's a process, so I don't expect a date. But when did you start sort of seeing yeah. the broader picture? So if we if we uh, if we go back to 
So in 08, in, uh, I left SIG in 08. And I, two, 2007 was like a bonkers year for us. Um, our NYMEX building uh, initiative that we had started had done really well. Um, she's a, actually another public person, Tina, who's more protein bars on Twitter. She she was our, our, she was also part of that team, but she was on the, she was on the uh, the Nybot floor at the time. And we we're all part of this team, and um, we had really taken that business from go don't go losing a lot of money to like we've we've arrived to something here. What happened was in 08, uh, you know, standing next to you know you're standing next to all these guys that are on deals where they're getting eighty percent of their P and L. You know, it's like they don't get they don't get salaries or whatever, and they're trading way, way smaller than me. But you know, you could get seventy or eighty percent of your P and L. And I said, you know what? That sounds pretty good to me. Rather than you know making a very compared to our P and L, like my pay wasn't that high, even though it was like pretty high for a you know twenty seven year old kid or whatever guy at the time. But the guys next to me, they were crushing life. So I said, okay, I want to. I should go be an entrepreneur here and go get a backer and all that. So that happened. I took six months off in 08, got, you know, got engaged, kind of, you know, got healthier, all this stuff. Um, and then I went over, I had a non-compete with SIG. Um, all SIG traders get this non-compete. So I couldn't trade oil. So I went over and started to trade natural gas. I, I convinced the backer that I was steady hands. I said, look, I know this thing's a beast. We were trading that gas. My partner was trading that gas. I know what this thing looks like. I know it's a widow maker and a nightmare and all that stuff. They never had anybody trade that gas for them. And I convinced them that I was steady enough to let me do it. So I traded gas. That's I started trading gas for them. And I ended up, um, we kind of, I built that. I brought on a partner that would end up that was my former colleague at SIG who ended up being my partner all the way. I mean, he's still at the hedge fund that I, I just left, but he ended up being my partner for my whole career from that point. He, uh, we hired another guy. We traded gas. I was the floor guy. Uh, my partner was the upstairs guy. We had a clerk on the screens. We were basically making markets everywhere. Like all that we had, we were covering the, all the voice brokers upstairs. I was covering the pit. And then our clerk was was uh, making mark was streaming, so between us, we kind of had all those aspects of that business kind of covered. The problem was is natural gas decided it was going to be a crappy thing to trade because the shale boom starts happening, and this ultimately killed volatility in the marketplace. And we were finding interesting little niches. I started trading uh, gas versus UNG. I actually got myself turned upside down on that pretty badly because right when UNG, I don't know if you guys remember, like 2011, there was all this stuff about, sorry, I'm being kind of long-winded about this. You get, you asked the question. No, well, man, you're, you're, yeah, you're right on track. <laughs> so, all right. So the, in 2011, uh, in 2011, that was when commodities, people were starting to get upset. Like, Hey, if you're going to let all this speculation in commodities, we're going to we're going to screw up the price of food and and all these things and it's going to be bad for the economy and regular people and all this, you know get these investors out of kind of the same thing we see with real estate today right like get these investors out of these markets so 
in UNG, what had happened was the trust uh, that the trust decided that they were going to cap the creations. And what I was doing at the time was this is when I had a backer. So we were we were uh, we were arbing UNG vol versus uh, gas futures vol. And what happened was when they capped the, the creations, UNG went to a, a premium over its nav. Now, you know, the supply is restricted. By the way, I think a very, very, very large and smart arbitrage shop, who I think I know who it is, anticipated all this and created all the shares. So they basically lifted the entire market. I think it was like multi-hundred million dollars kind of kind of kind of thing. And uh, so the irony of it <laughs> of it all being where I had been. So anyway, what happened was I was long UNG vol, short gas vol. And every time and gas was still kind of volatile at this time, every time gas would drop in price the premium to nav would just, would just like basically, sorry, the, the, uh, every time it rallied, the ETF basically would like converge back to its nav and every time it sold off, it would widen. So what happened was I was long th something that stopped moving and the thing I was short was doing this. <laughs> so uh, I get, so, you know, this is normally a trade that's like, okay, maybe there's like two vols in this thing, one vol in it back then, whatever. Nowadays, things like that, it's like zero vols are in it. But like back, like when I'm doing it, it's like one or two vols might be in the thing. This thing went to like 20 vols wide. And you, and it's like, you can't, you can't really get out of the trade. And you're in the realized vol is chopping you to pieces. So anyway, gas made me real. And that was trade, you know, having a backer, it's like mostly my own money in there. So I was like, this is, this is, this sucks. This isn't, I'm getting pretty annoyed. And then all of a sudden, after all that gas ball starts to basically drop. And I'm like, you know what? We got to look, we got to find other ways to make money. This gas stuff's not working. So we, that was when I, I went into the gold and silver pit, caught that, just got lucky on that. Cause then silver went, silver went, that was when silver went to 50 bucks. I happened to already like have a membership on the Comex and I could trade it from the pit. We were built. So were you arbing silver and SLV at the time then, or what was the trade in silver? We were, yeah, we were doing that. markets and okay. We were doing that too. By the way, our backers were like, we were the only people at the whole, they, they backed a hundred traders. We were the only guys, me and my partner, we were the only guys doing ETF to, to futures. We were the only ones doing like the SEC products. Everybody else doing FTC. So we were like this giant headache because we, were, we kept, you know, being like, you got to let us do this. You got to let us do this. Look, this is, and they're like, they, to their credit, they, they, they did all the red tape to make it happen so that we could build, so we could do these things. But so we ended up, we ended up uh, trading silver SLV versus silver futures, but also this trading in silver was just bananas. So um, just, making markets. That, just making markets like on that run. So, and Oh, the other thing is because we were so, that was the big thing because we were active streamers in in natty we were like the only streamers at silver in the beginning or one of the only Hold on. what does that mean active streamers can you define so that? we were making we were making markets on the screen basically so we were we were we were um you know we had software that allow us to make like bid out so we would set vol curves and then 
those vol curves, we would generate bid ask prices around those around those vol curves. And then we would just pilot the vol curves and you, you're basically like automated trading in a way, right? So you have some logic and, you know, you're just making markets. But so when the, you say you set vol curves, you, you know, you've, you had your models, it yeah. interpolated, you had your vol curves, you knew, you know, where the dispersion was against your models and, your, and, and this is right. the use of the markets we're making. Okay. And a lot of a lot of by and a lot of that process is is, is mostly taking it's taking information from the market. So like in the voice market, if somebody's like, I'm, you know, somebody's like, I'm 32 vol bid. If I see the straddles like 32 vol bid in the voice market, I'm going to raise my curve. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that my, my curve is, you know, 31.8 vol bid or 32 vol bid. Even if I want to lean, if I think that, if I, if I think that person, if I anticipate that 32 vol bid in the voice market is a big, like if I think if I think it's big or if I think he has got room and maybe he's going to go up and pay 33 ball I'm 32 bit on screen all day trying to accumulate what I can get, knowing that I'm going to, you know, there's a, you know, maybe there's a, there's a 40% chance I'm going to be able to sell 33 ball. Maybe there's a 30% chance I'm going to sell 32 and a half ball. So, you know, you're just constantly all day back and forth between arbing, between, like, like, like between voice, voice and screens and pit. That's everything. So what, were, what were the edges there, Chris? Like, was it was it having you know tentacles or you know information flow from those three yeah. domains? Was it having better models? Was it having better you know faster computers, better access? What, what, what were the edges that you were? What made you better than the other people that were that were trying to do the similar things? Yeah. So it was um, communication and being in looking at being in with all the places, being able to access the brokers, like having rapport. I mean, a lot of it's like a lot of his relationships, because brokers got to trust you that you're going to be able to stand on, especially in the voice markets, because I mean, we were trading on Yahoo messenger. I'm like, you know, every, every, every second, every single second of the day. I mean, I'm not even joking. It's like constant barrage of, you know, I've got, I've got a chat thing up. I've got 50 blinking tabs on it. And you're like scrolling through them all to like make sure you're like you know what the most recent bids and offers are. And this is point and click, right? You're like adjusting yeah. things yeah. in your model manually. You're punching numbers in and watching the other numbers change. Totally. And oh, you also got and you got the phone like the upstairs has got the phone turret, so you're getting IM. Yeah. You're getting shouted out. It's it can be like you know how many times a day that it's like. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You're getting talked over. It's like there's there's, there's 30 voices at the same time. It's 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 like um, I don't. It's you're in a blender, man. That's what it is. You're just in a blender. So, uh, uh, so you're 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 flipping between tabs. You're listening to all the brokers, and then you're on the floor, and then I'm yelling, I'm yelling up. You know, I'm I'm on a headset in the pit, and I'm like, yo yo yo, so and so is this bid for these call spreads. Um, they're bidding for 500. I think he's got 1500 behind. Um, is there anything you can go like, um, so basically like he's going to do that. So he's going to kill the skew. Are there any call bids on voice? Are there any call bids on the IM? So you're looking for a lean. Yeah. To smoke those. Like what's the best bid out there in the 20 Delta call and go wax those bids and I'll sell these call spreads in the pit. And then we'll buy a straddle back somewhere else. And we're basically what we're doing is legging everything. Right. So it's like, in the pit, I sold the call spread outright. In uh, upstairs, I bought the straddle, which is like buy, basically buying the at the money leg back, and then we sold the calls 
to somebody that was just bidding for calls. So like maybe there's some some customer just wants to punt or whatever. They're buying calls for whatever reason. Like everybody's got all the customers got different motivations for what they're doing. Some are uh, Delta traders, some are vol traders, some are um, everybody's got different motivation. One guy's just like periodically he does this every month, whatever, whatever it is. So you're trying to match this all up. And in the meantime, you have to decide. I mean, you'd like to be flat, but like you kind of have to have a position. I mean, there's no, you, you know, the amount of line items that I was had, I'd have like, you know, like literally thousands of line items on my book, like just strikes and every month and all over the place. And I got a six lot there and I got a, you know, 1500 lot over here, like everything. Um, so between all that stuff, you're trying to figure out what do I want my position to be? So in the middle of all this, who's smart? Like what flow out here is actually vol smart so that I can figure out how I want to lean this book. Right. So, uh, so, so in the middle, so what's making you better is like, you are accessing everything. Your tech is uh, good enough to not, I mean, you didn't necessarily have to be the fastest. That would be great if you were, but you just needed to be good enough. Um, mostly to not get picked off all the time. <laughs> and then you're, uh, and you, you had to basically cover all the markets. And now if you're doing all that, that was enough to have an edge. You could trade like one product. If you had all your bases covered, you had relationships with the brokers and you had coverage everywhere, you could make money. You could, have, you, you had a business. And if you were clever enough to position the book the right way, you, um, you could survive. You'd, you'd be pretty- It's remarkable to me, right? All of our stuff is, is systematic and there's obviously lots of different inputs and, and lots going on and, and the models are interesting. But what, what is fascinating to me is that you are managing so much of those dimensions manually, right? Like there's, as you say, there's, there's hundreds or you know, thousands of line items. You're getting information from all these different sources. You're consolidating that, synthesizing it, you're plugging it into models. You're making sure you're not making errors. And a lot of that is like point and click or typing numbers and, and talking to people on the phone. How, how do you, how did you build a skill set to manage that cognitively? I mean, it's a very different skill set nowadays, right? Like, yeah. So how did you, how did you do that then? Just, it was just training and training and reps. I mean, you know, one of the, this is kind of like a, it's, it's a funny thing. Like, it's all it's first of all training and reps. There's no real magic. There's no real magic to it. It's just doing it. If you do this a lot, like you get better at it. So there's nothing mystical about it, but it is, there's a lot to be said. And I'm, I'm kind of big on this point in general. There's a lot to be said for experience to give you an idea. Like I've traded, I traded about, you know, at least for the last decade, I've traded close to a hundred thousand equity options a day. Okay. I, when my Friday would come my expiration, like my con, like the contras, like, like, uh, just how many contra orders you need to like decide whether I want to exercise or not exercise. Cause it's like right on the bubble, right on the strike or whatever. It's like, you know, that's like a process, right? You're managing so, so many, um, things that it becomes absolutely second nature. I used to dream in options all the time constantly like i it was the way some people like see tetris at night i just like it's like option chains and orders it was like like this i would dream like that mm -hmm. so and there's nothing magical about it other than immersion it's utter immersion like 
I was speaking to a guy that was asking me about how you, how do you learn this stuff? I said, let me tell you what my training was like. I spent, you'd go to the floor, you'd be immersed all day long with these option board, you know, you know, the floors, the exchanges, they had all those boards up on up above you, all the prices and what the S and P is doing and whatever all day long with the guy I'm clerking for, we're making markets on what the end of the day volume is going to be. We're trading options on what the end of the day volume is going to be like paper trading. And we're going to settle this up. We're making markets on what various prices are going to be. I remember, I remember getting, you know, losing so much money being stubborn and shorting Krispy Kreme to the guys that I was back, back in the day to the guys that I was working for that I had to take four guys out for like a $2,000 dinner at Nobu when I was 22 years old. And that was three times my rent. Okay. Like, <laughs> like you were, and, and, and then you'd finish your day. You'd be like, okay, I'm done. I'm done with my, I'm done with my, um, my trading day. Then I'm going to go to mock trading. I'm going to spend 90 minutes in mock trading with a bunch of guys that are all competing or and, and gals all competing to get to Susquehanna's training class to spend 10 weeks in Balakinwood, Pennsylvania. That's a big deal because, you know, on average, it takes nine months to two years to go to that class. I get hired. I was making $37,000 a year. You, your pay was going to jump to 50 grand when you went into the class. And then it was going to jump to like 90 when you came out of that class. And we're broke. Like, I want to. I want to get the class right. So, we are. You're doing put call parity games. You're trying to get fast. Remember, my like mental math skills at those at that time was you're just constantly working on it because you got to be fast. You're in the pit. You're in the pit. You need to remember. You you might be at a post on the Amex and you're trading a list of thirty stocks. Okay, there's thirty stocks in the in there. They all have. Uh, they all have um, option chains and there's resting call offers and call bids and put offers and put bids all over the chain. As soon as the stock moves, do you know what you're going to yell out to the specialist to say, I want to buy uh, Microsoft Gen 40 calls. Take those. I'll take, I'll take what's on the screen there. I'll take those, sell those put like as soon as the stock rips, what are all the put bids I'm going to hit? Where are all the call offers I'm going to lift in everything that I trade? And I need to keep track of all this all the time. As a clerk, we would keep a spreadsheet I on a single list thing. I knew what every position was. I said, if this broker comes into the pit, I know he's long 450 of these calls. I know he bought them for this price on this day. And when he comes in, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like, which way am I going to lean that market? Okay. He comes in. I think the thing's worth seven. He comes in, but I think he's a buyer. He's or he he's short them, and he's actually coming to buy them back because I know that the market has dropped from when he bought these two weeks ago, and he's probably looking to take his profit. So he comes in quoting these calls. He's short four fifty of them. Okay, I think it's worth seven. What's my market? I'm twelve eighteen. Show me a fourteen bid. That's okay. All day. Millions of so Chris, is, so Chris, can, can I ask you just, can I just pause it? Cause I, yeah. you are dealing with a lot of information. I'm sure when you first began, you talk about experience, right? When you first began, you must've been terrified. So I do eventually want to ask you that, but, but you're dreaming in option chains. There's a lot of information coming at you. You talked a little bit, you, you hinted at the fact that you took some time off, no way to get healthy. How's, 
a trader's lifestyle, like sleep-wise, stress-wise? Yeah. Or do you get to a point where you can actually be a trader, process all that information, and be in perfect health and everything's peachy, hunky-dory? Like, how, how do you deal with the mental stress of it all? Uh, you're a little bit of a crackhead. I mean, it's like, not, not like literally, but like, yeah, you're, you're, I was a different, I was a different person in my twenties, right? Like being on the floor and all that, it was, it was, um, man, you, no, you didn't sleep well and you, you didn't work very long hours, especially when I went over to commodities, the hours were pretty short, but the, and the other thing is too, is this, I, I should say this. There is actually a lot of boredom in the job. There's a ton of boredom. Poker is a great analogy for it because you're folding a lot of hands. But um, if the market wasn't busy, I mean, you guys know now, I mean, even if on a quiet on a quiet day, it feels like there's not a whole lot to do. And you would have plenty of days. Like summers felt like that. Summers were boring. It's like maybe the open and the close are busy, but you're just shooting the shit all day like with the guys around you right it's very um it's it's not it's not so high strung all the time so you, what you had to do is uh, the analogy people used to use i think it's pretty fair it's like you're a fireman right it's like you know you that that bell goes off yeah. and you go into fight or flight mode you got to get up for you got to be you know you got to get fired up you go into that pit in the morning it's like you know you you know every morning where your team like you're, it's like fist bumps all around all right huddle up let's go like we're going to we're going to get after it today and then then you hit the sort of slow part in the day and like you know everyone's sitting on the stairs in the pit and kind of chilling out so it it's it's a uh, it's sprints and rests and it's always stressful because even when it actually, because the rests usually are coinciding with losing money. Resting, resting is usually bad. You're sad. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like being an actor and you don't have a gig. Right. So that's, uh, I, I would say that the, the boredom can be difficult. The losing money can be difficult. Um, again, as a market maker, your positions are oftentimes uh, not things that you chose. So, you know, you're hoping that you don't give up all the edge that you made trying to manage the position and hedge the position. So um, the stress is fairly constant, but it is when it's rocking and rolling, although it's all this information and all this stimulus, it is um, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. So you're also probably not making the best decisions after trading hours either, right? Like you're not you're you're not going directly from the pit to the gym and then from the gym to the to to get your protein and veggies and then to bed by nine a.m. Right? Like, uh, if, no, I I mean, maybe I was pretty, honestly I was pretty good. I was pretty disciplined. I was not um, I was not a guy that was going to go drink at the bar sort of afterwards every day. Like I, I actually didn't do that. That's why you look bad and I look like this and we're the same age. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it was, it was, um, you, you would go out with brokers. That was a common, that's part of your workflow. Um, you're going out with brokers a lot, but I was never, and, and honestly, I was like, as, even as young as sort of 30, I was already, I'd go out with brokers cause it was fun. And some of them would become your friends. And, um, and also it's a great way to get information, but I don't need you to take me out till three o'clock in the morning. And it, like, I'm not. I don't need that. So, and I was never really, I was never really that big into all that 
um, at the time. So I kind of managed to keep some se some semblance of balance there. I mean, your brokers have really, really, I mean, I think brokers' lives are extra crazy, especially the, the young guys that they have to hire who are in charge of entertaining. They're their existence is nuts in my mind L looks way like to me, I'm like, it's way harder existence than my existence. They have to always be on. They always have to make the customer happy. Like it's just different. I, 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 I couldn't, that wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do that. Um, but all of this was a game and it was fun. And, um, but what happened was in, like I said, the gas thing fizzled out. I got into silver and then I went into cotton and cotton in 2011 went into a short squeeze. I went, got a membership there and went into that pit. It was like one thing to the other. It was like silver went nuts. I'm going to do that. Cotton got nuts. I'm going to do that. Then to go all the way back and answer Adam's question from a half hour ago, that was when I re realized my partner and I had sat down and talked about it and said, look, we got we have now traded a lot of markets. I went into coffee. We started trading different things. We were doing the ETFs versus the futures. And that was when the, the matrix started to appear to us. We said, listen, let's go get a kid that knows how to code. <laughs> and let's, let's, build a, let's build the spider web, data, like a database, and we can see the web. And let's see if we can trade all this stuff as a book as a portfolio that was um, that happened then um, at the same time, at the same time he started, my partner started incubating or uh, building a trend following a model. That was like our first, and by the way. So what year would that have been? What's that? What year would that have been? Like 06? 11. 11. Oh, okay. Yeah. 11. Right. Yeah. So this is 2011. So I spent like 10 years, like in the dark about, like how finance actually works, right? Like just, I'm just playing my, just playing my game, right? Around 11, it starts, he starts building this trend following model. He reads the turtle book. I forget which one, but he reads like the original turtle book. He starts- It's really important the time to start building trend following models. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, 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 it's funny. I mean, they're, they're, you know, I probably shouldn't speak on their behalf, but it's like that thing has turned into something extremely successful. 10 years later it's been yeah, a exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like, in a rocky decade but paying off now yeah and but in any case that that um he started doing that we hire this kid he builds us this database in java or something it's like that zero p.m and that was when uh we started to say <laughs> listen um i think there's more to all this i think that if we took what we understood about how to transact in markets and then now started to like learn about how to construct a portfolio and all that. We think that there's something more scalable here and being on the floor is not going to be the future anyway. So this is, we started to see the light at the end of the tunnel. That was when I got the call from the guy that runs the fund that I was just at also was the guy that recruited me at SIG. I went to college with him. And he reached out to me out of the blue in the late 2011 and said, so we are ramping up a bunch and we don't, we're out here punting on USO. We don't really know commodities. I know you've been over there for seven years doing commodities now. 
do you want to come build that business? And I remember I got the text message while my wife and I were, my wife is from the Bay area. We were going to visit her family in the Bay area. And I got the text message before we got on the plane for Thanksgiving. And by the time we had, and, and all it was, that's all it said. Would you be willing, you think you'd move to California and build this business? And, you know, that was it. One text message. And by the time we landed in San Francisco and got into a cab to go to her sister's place, you know, we get there and we're like, we're going to move to California. Like, like, I hadn't even had a conversation with them. We're just like, we're coming, we're going to, we're going to come home. And so that ended up being the ticket to come and do all the stuff that this young guy had built with us. This fund was going to, was going to throw real resources behind this and let me build it. I ended up trying to convince my partner to come. He had gotten into some really cool stuff, trading Brent, Brent options versus crude options. He was crushing life. I can't walk away from this. I said, man, you know, this ain't the future. This is like, this is going to run. It's, it's going to run its course. It's like, I know, but I got to do what I got to do. No problem. I managed to get him to join. I joined the fund built it, built the infrastructure out. I mean, with the team, I guided the team that built the infrastructure out, started trading that stuff, got him to join three years later. He ended up joining the fund and yeah. And we just did our, we did the thing that we wanted to do that we envisioned in 2011, but it was all luck as far as I just, I just went from one market to the other. I got one membership here, a membership there. And then I just started to see it all. And then I said, you know what? There's more to this than just playing this little game. There's a giant dashboard heat map of the world and do it all. Yeah. And so now you make the transition from prop trading to OPM. Yeah. Right. Other people's money. And so what was, what was that transition like? We we talked a little bit about it pre, pre the call. So that was, that was a bit of fun. How did your mindset have to shift going from, you know, smashing phones in the pit to now having to talk to investors. Yeah. So lots of fun stuff here. I, <laughs> I, um, so the first thing I would say is it was jarring to me to go up to a desk and it was very, very quiet compared to what it was. I, I, I mentioned this cause it was extremely salient to me. It was very disturbing to me. Um, I, being on the floor, you can tell when things start to happen because there's a din, there's a noise, and you can feel it. The f- you can absolutely feel when the market's starting to do weird stuff. You can hear one, you can hear certain pits start to get loud. And I didn't realize how tuned I was to that until it was taken away from me. And then I'm off the floor and I'm like, I don't know what the hell's going on. I don't even, I don't know how to do I had a big problem of like, how do I direct my attention? It was, it was again, sounds ridiculous, but it's, it's, it's really, it's like one of the things that really stood out to me in that transition. So that was one. The other thing is I had to get, I had to improve my skills because you need a little bit more self-reliance in that setting. So I had to kind of up my skills a little bit. I, you know, I can't just keep asking for developer cycles on every last little thing I need. So I needed to get at least better in, and we're talking about Excel here, like getting really good at Excel, that kind of had to happen. And then, um, uh, 
And then the big thing was starting to appreciate that I cannot think like a market maker all the time. Like my, my, I can't sell this thing just because I think it's a good, because in two minutes, it's going to be a good trade. It's like, I'm going to be, I need to trade bigger. That's I what I was going to ask. Yeah. I need to trade bigger and I need to hold, I'm, 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 I'm more inventorying and warehousing than I am churning. This was really hard. I, 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 it was, um, it was very hard to switch that mindset um, that, that, that basically sliding down the risk reward scale. I'm now moving into a business where I'm trying to make like a 50% return on capital instead of a 200% return on capital. I mean, it's like a completely different, different game. So, uh, that, that, um, um, sort of adoption to kind of, kind of, I was more, I was like getting less gun shy, and getting more conviction in what I was doing. Um, I had to think more about gauging liquidity became market makers always gauge liquidity. It's actually the job. The job ultimately is to gauge liquidity. It's like, I'm going to sell you this because I think that I can cover 70% of the risk by going out and lifting all these related things. And then I'm willing to just let the other 30% ride. And uh, so a book edge, hold some risk, manage the residuals. That's the business. Uh, here, uh, I had to, I had to really, um, that it was, it was, it was, a, it was very difficult for me to do that, but it, after years, it took years to get better and better at it. So I was a better allocator of sort of capital and thinking in this much more, um, opinionated way, you know, you had I, to have a position. You had, I to, had, have position. I had to have opinions. I, I really didn't have, um, up until this point, I really didn't have opinions. I didn't, you, you know. This is, yeah. This is a crucial point, right? That I think people need to understand when, when they talk, when they hear you say how much money you were making in the pits and you knew that you knew if there was, a, there was money to be made because the spread was in a certain way, you needed to take this position, you got that position. It was an arbitrage that you were able to lift. That is that is a tangible physical thing that you can, that, that you know as a trader you can do. But when you start managing other people's money, you start getting into size, all of a sudden you have to start taking positions. You can no longer, you're not looking at pure arbitrage necessarily. There's too much money. So I, I guess. What's the size difference? What size sh sh shift was yeah. it for you from when you, what you were doing independently to when you had to manage other people's money? Like how many X more were you managing at that time? Oh, that was, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. I mean, I would think about it in terms of Greeks oftentimes. So like how big of a Vega I would carry. Um, and you were, how many dollar deltas you're carrying a position. I mean, you know, we were, we were always going from a situation where if I was carrying $10 million deltas, that was a big deal to, you know, just, that's an utter rounding error on what I was doing at the fund. Right. So it was, um, and I would say this, if there was, you know, if there was any push, one of the things that probably pushed against me was I probably didn't take enough risk. I was actually fairly, I think my mentality is pretty well, was like kind of well suited to being a market maker in a sense. Probably didn't take enough risk even, probably not until the last few years that I really start to 
butt up against the lines of what I thought were capacity constraints on some ideas. I was sort of always operating sort of a lot well below what I thought capacity constraints kind of was. Um, but the, you know, kind of, you could think about it in terms of theta, for example, when I was an independent or independent trader or whatever, if I had like a 40 or $50,000 a night theta bill, that would be pretty big. That would be really big. That was, you know, completely normal. You know, by the time I'm running a, a bigger book, it's like, you know, you would, be multi, you know, four or five X that as far as like what a, what a typical theta bill could be um, nightly. And that, um, so this risk wise, it was a lot wider. It was a lot larger than it was sort of independent. Um, and the other thing is, uh, I kind of mentioned this before the call. Big reason I came to like Twitter helped me learn how to translate map the things that I thought about as a trader. I remember I mentioned before the call, my first time I went to an investor meeting, uh, I was speaking about things in terms of VIGs, who were the donkey customers, uh, getting picked off, who I'm picking off. Like I'm using this language. And it's like, there's somebody, you know, there's like a consultant on the other side of the table and the, with an MBA. And like, they're looking at me and like, I think they were actually interested. I thought, it, I, I actually think speaking in these terms is kind of fresh to somebody that doesn't hear that all the time. But it's it's the questions you're getting are, you realize like they're real, they don't really know what you're talking about in a sense. Um, so they're not totally off put by it, but there's a, they, they have to do all this like cognitive translation, right? And I came out of there, I said, damn, I, I gotta learn how people talk. I, I like, and you know, alpha, this is like never, nobody on the floor ever said the word alpha. So, uh, because it was all alpha, right? That, like it, you're, if you, it, the fish never talk about the the water, right? Like it's yeah, all right. it's all alpha on the floor. And you guys are not, you guys are not generating returns from the drift in the markets. It's, it's all, a business. It's all yeah, That's you know, right. one of my favorite was asking um, JP, asking him like, "What was your sharp ratio?" And like, "What's I, sharp rate? What on the my trade my book? I, I don't know. Like I made." five, 10 million a year, whatever, you know, what, like what are the, 20, whatever the number was. Yeah. And I'm like, well, how much on what base? I'm like, what base? Like, what do you mean by that? I'm like, well, how much AUM are you managing? Well, that, I don't think in those terms. Like, yeah, okay, like, if I gave you a hundred million, how much would you make on that? Right. It's just such a completely different mindset. Yeah. Yeah. It really than is. OPM raise money, you know, having, have a, a base. And then you have, when you're having, when you have that much money, you now have to, decide what you can actually do that you did in your old job, which is right. much, much less. And that's when you start looking at turtle traders and trend yeah. and, and seeing what alpha you can create. And, and there's no real sucker. Who's the sucker? Who's the, who's the customer? Well, the customer is just human nature, right? Yep. On the trend side of things in, in all, a lot of ways. All of that learning, like, like learning everything you just said right there, that all happened in the second half of my career. My second half of the career was so different than the first half, but that's what helped me. Like I kind of put everything together. Like, like now I'm learning how this all works. And I learned this language. Um, I appreciate this language now, you know, before I thought it was, you know, 
uh, academic or geek speak or whatever. I appreciate this language now. And I learned all that. And then I was able to sort of combine it all. And, you know, I got better at being able to speak to people about it and then understand how to turn what we were doing into a story that, uh, you know, a proper investor could make sense of. Uh, to, yeah. yeah. And that, that ultimately that's, you know, I think my writing is an attempt, is an attempt to sort of marry both of them, both those perspectives. Cause they're not, they're completely not exclusive one another. They're, it's all ultimately really, really similar. It's just the tra- the, the language that you use for it, the vocabulary of it. And um, so, you know, trying to get more, trying to get more polished and trying to be more proper was a big thing in the last nine years for me, like uh, kind of getting away from that old minds or old way of talking about things. And then, and, and then, then learning. And then, then you start learning, you know, fact when I, the first time I heard about factors I said, Oh, the first time I ever heard about the awards, anything similar to the idea of a factor was in speaking to a trader who had run, who was running stat arb kind of strategies <clears throat> and said, I remember they said, and this was like, this was probably more than a decade ago. And they said something to me like all with stat arb, every time you do stat arb, what ends up happening is you find out later that you were exposed to something that you didn't model in the first hand. Like, Oh, uh, I'm actually just, I'm doing all these trades. I think that I'm, I've got all this edge. And then it turns out that everything that I'm long is like super levered. Like their balance sheet is super levered. Like there's some like factor that's going on under, under the hood. That's how I thought of factors first. Right. And then when I started to read on Twitter, oh, there's things called value and there's things called growth and momentum. And these are called factors. And oh, okay, this is a whole, all, wow, there's a whole other world out here of, 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 of this stuff um, that I didn't and you, know. You had to translate, translate some of that nomenclature for yourself, I suppose. I mean, you must have been familiar with momentum. Yeah, mean well, version. You just more. called it something else. I mean, you were like, just, I just called it a trend. I mean, I didn't even. Right. Yeah, I didn't use the word. I got. I didn't use the word momentum. And I, and again, it's like when we get into the when we talk about topics like that, I'm very unsophisticated as far as my even to like my ability. Like, what's the difference between momentum and trend? Like, I don't know the nuances between them. It's like what's right. what's the one that you know if the thing has went up. If it's higher than the moving average, what's that? Or what's the thing that it's like, okay, it's went up this many percent and then it's went up and then it's went up again. Like, is that, is that something different? Um, I don't know exactly what the words for these different things are, but like the concept makes sense. Yeah. And it's interesting how the way people perceive, you know, when you think about a prop trader and somebody that creates a shop and it's a business and they're, they're spitting out money based on these trades and taking all these risks. Um, Like you said in the beginning, you know, I don't know where these guys are actually investing their money because investing is a different thing than the business. And when they go out and invest their money, they're, they're actually looking around for this type of stuff, right? Or they end up a lot of times putting their hard earned money and, and a lot of it, if not most of their wealth ends up going into traditional large AUM type strategies, right? Yeah. Where's it going to go? Because, because you don't have, no. you can't put that money back to work uh, it, when right. you're when you're bumping up against those limits. So right. it's always it's, it, that was a one one point for me when I was like, oh, okay. So you you make a lot of money here because that's your business, but you're making the average money that everybody every one of us is making with your actual money at this point. 
Yeah. And you're always trying, and that edge that you're trying to chase is the same edge that we're all trying to chase when it's OPM or large AUM type of dollars. Right. Um, of course, they're always finding somebody to give some smart uh, group of people to give money to, but it's it's very difficult to, right? What to I was going to say is the, one, with the thing, when I got that call about coming out to San Francisco to be with this fund, that was a big transition for that fund. That, 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 that fund is like the, you know, the, probably the longest running ball fund in America, right? I, I believe. And that was started by a guy who was, you know, world champ backgammon player in the 80s. And it was a broker dealer. It was structured. He was a prop shop structured as a broker dealer. But they started taking outside capital maybe in the 90s. But who was the capital? It was all his gambler buddies. Yeah. That's all it was. It was just gambling buddies. And so people, even, you know, for the first 10 years of my career, talking about investing, most people were like, it wasn't like, what are you investing in? It's like, what are you backing? We're just right. backing. Yeah. Everything's backing. Right. Who's backing yeah. who? You know, yeah. when I left SIG, it's like, can I get a piece of him? Right. That, like, that's this is like, this is like the poker room, man. Exactly oh, right. I got, I got my start as an independent by a backer, but that, but that backer had to give a piece of me to two, two guys that like found me. Right. Like, so it was the, two guys, the guy standing next to me in the pit. And then the guy that was the biggest, the biggest oil options market maker in the world at the time. I shared an office with and he uh uh he was my other first backer like we met on the floor and he convinced me to join that backer and part of the deal was like they're gonna the backer's gonna back me and they'll get like 80 you know whatever 70 percent of me and these two other guys that found me they're gonna get 15 percent of me each and that was that was how the deal that was how the deal was structured and uh the and that was it. Like at the time, it's like, you just like, who are you backing? And like, when you were in that ecosystem, like you could back other people and you could, uh, I used to train, I used to, that, that big market maker, he had a big team. I had a team. I, I was like four people, at, you know, when I was there, he had 20. Okay. Like we shared an office, by the way, that's a whole other story. These guys wanted to get up. It was a crazy office. These guys wanted to get a penguin. Um, <laughs> penguin yeah. Statue. I mean, like, they were like trying to figure out how to get a penguin like for the office. It was like, I, yeah. I can't wait for that movie to come out. Totally, totally weird world. And But anyway, in that office, they were, uh, he had this army of young guys working for him. And um, so I would train, I would train them. I would, I, I was like, I would run class, I would run mock trading for them. I would do theory with them. Like I was the, you know, I would just kind of, and it was just, you know, everyone just kind of like collaborated with each other. He, these guys are here. It's like, Hey dude, I'll take your kids and I'll, I'll, I'll teach them, you know, two days a week. I'll teach them. I'll give them homework. I'll get them studied up, whatever. And the hopes, the hopes was that they get it. Like you get, you get, you get 10 guys. You hope one of them, it gets it, it clicks and they can play it. They figure out how to play this game and then you get to back them. Like, so that, and of course, all the backing is, is like anything it's risk, right? So this idea that oh, I'm going to back and I'm guaranteed X amount of results. You can also get your brain, your brain blown off by backing the wrong guys. And you, and oftentimes it does happen, right? So it, it, it continues yeah. to be that game of selecting and, the right players. And that goes back to the market that they're good at. Doesn't stop working. As you've mentioned a few times. I was going to say, it goes back to what the business is, what Mike was saying. When you talk about this as a business, the business fundamentally at its core, even at the fund, 
Number one is risk management. It, the whole thing is risk management. The whole thing is survive. Um, I mean, you could open up on, you can, we can have 50 conversations about like managing a large option portfolios that, but that is, I feel like at the end of the day, that is, um, that is the essence, the core of the whole business is how do you manage these giant option portfolios with all these line items? That is the job to be done, the differentiator. That's the whole thing. It's like everything is like risk management first. I mean, you got to, I mean, you have no business without edge, but you have no, if you cannot keep the edge, you have nothing gets off the ground. And so, Everything, well, even even, like, even edge edge without risk management is not edge, right? You, you have edge. edge, and then you have to size it, and and then you have to worry about risk of ruin, and you have to size it based on risk of ruin and all of that stuff. It's it's these are these are yin and yang; they're intertwined. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, I look at I look at it all as it's, it's, it's interesting. My lens on investing is um, it's mostly. The, the whole game to me is seeing the, like they use this expression, uh, not in the trading world. I saw this from the, maybe the VC world or something, but seeing the present clearly. And when I thought, when I heard that, I said, oh, that's what trading is. All trading is, is measuring and seeing the present really clearly. It's taking the whole world almost in like a cross-sectional kind of way, a heat map and just finding what sticks out. And then trading all the stuff that sticks out creating a portfolio of that stuff. So it's like, I'm going to look at all the liquid markets in the world and I'm going to say, I'm going to calibrate to them. Those are all fair. Everybody that's trading that stuff, like there's no edge in trading liquid markets. Like I'm going to take all that stuff, assume that it's fair. And then what sticks out in the world once I have calibrated to that. And then once I have done that, I think that I've got this big pile of edge. How am I going to keep it? And that's the risk management. And at the end of the day, like, that's how I see the business. And that's how it has nothing to do with predicting in my mind. Like, again, like I didn't, I didn't like thematic investing or having opinions about the future or grand. Like, like what is all that? I, I like, how do you know any of that's true? It's like, can never tell prove to me that any of that's right. Like it's not to pick on like Kathy Wood. I, I don't, you know, like people pile what are you talking out. about. She's guaranteed 40% return yeah, uh, next but, year on her. The fund. thing is I immediately dismiss her as not advice unserious because it is not has nothing to do with like it's just because i know she's not risk management first so i have to dismiss her it's not anything else to me but like she just has these visions of the future and to me i'll never grok that that uh, you can't tell me anything about the future and i'm gonna be like yeah that i mean sure what i like could I take a flyer on something like that? And, and it, you know, that goes in the entertainment budget, right? It's like, that's entertainment <laughs> to me, but it's not serious in my, in, in, in my mind, because it doesn't come from that framework. Again, I'm completely biased. There's not a global macro bone in you. There isn't. Well, here I, I'm, I'm interested, Adam, because I do want to segue yeah. into what are we seeing today? in the vast normalness that's abnormal and what Chris is seeing. But if, if you want to go somewhere first before that, I just want to get there eventually. If you yeah, have I think you want to go actually first. my question was going to kind of segue there anyways, which is, which was okay, about go, go ahead. how did you think about risk management? And I'd love to hear details if, if any stand out, but how did you think about risk management that, that kept you alive 
when many others flamed out. Yeah. Uh, there are certain principles that uh, I would adhere to as far as how to manage a book. Um, some of this, I think, is a bit, a lot of it's context dependent, but let's take a sort of a broad one. Uh, a lot of people have rules about, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to lump trend into this because it'll be obvious in a minute. For example, if you are managing an options portfolio, you do not want to have a risk rule that says, if I lose this much money, get out. Because first of all, conceptually, that makes no sense to me. Why would my rule of doing anything be uh, conditional upon the me my P&L's memory? It makes no sense to me. So, uh, the other reason why you don't want to have a rule like that is because that's when the opportunity is probably the best is when the pain is kind of happening and happened. So you don't want PL memory as an input into the rule. So what do you do? You have to have your ex ante rule beforehand has to constrain what is your losses that you can have. So you might have a rule that says, um, I'm, you know, and these kinds of things would come up in like you're trading, you have an options portfolio that says, you know what, um, if this stock, go, if a stock in this portfolio goes BK, I cannot lose X dollars. It's not, it's, it's not okay. So I cannot have a position that could lose X dollars in a bankruptcy scenario. So that is a constraint. I, um, I might say, okay, and I might have thresholds. There's thresholds beneath that. Say, okay, I, I don't want, um, uh, if I, I might have to reduce my position if it gets to a point where I could lose X dollars. But if I lose, if I lose Y dollars, I'm not even allowed to have that position. If I get, if I get into that territory, I have very, very strict rules about how quickly that position needs to get cut to get me below my cutoffs. Okay. So in an options portfolio, that's a, that's a simple kind of a rule that says I cannot ex ante have this kind of risk on not, I don't care how much edge you see in it, not allowed. Um, you cannot, uh, um, we would, I would think about things in terms of like constraining, not just your nets, it's your gross. I need to constrain my line item. How many options am I allowed to even have on a strike? I don't want to, because what if that strike pins? And now I have a coin flip on my dollar delta on Monday morning. Not allowed. Can't have can't have a position that big on a strike. Can't have um, you know, I can't run long 10 million Vega in one month and short 10 million Vega in another month and say, oh look, I'm flat. No, I have to constrain my gross in every month. I have to constrain by name, by sector, by um, it's just it's just this this like uh concentric orbits of constraints on everything that you are allowed that's to do. So familiar. <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, it's, it's, um, and then you, you're, you're, you have your Greeks are one thing you have, you, you might manage around your Greeks, but the thing about Greeks is that they're local. So my Greeks will, um, dictate how big things can be on sort of like a day-to-day -day basis. But I need to be able, I need to shock my portfolio. If I shock my portfolio and I put in insane assumptions about what could happen, especially me, I was trading futures. Any, uh, on average, futures contracts are correlated with one another on the term structure. 
but not always. Sometimes they can go in opposite directions and it makes sense that they would go in opposite directions because we could have a squeeze today that can destroy demand tomorrow. And that dynamic means that these it would be logical for these contracts to go in opposite directions. So if I'm using any kind of model that says that that acts as if this correlation is always um, positive, I have problems. I so I need to constrain against that. So it's just this constant number of constraints that you are putting on your portfolio and recognizing recognizing that the pat like the biggest shock has not happened yet. In everything that you trade, the biggest yeah. shock has not happened yet. So that has to be built into the port. That also has to be built into your risk. So, um, and then with options, because you have all these different orders of stuff, you, you need to account for all that as well. So um, in a sense, I think that it's probably like one of the, probably the great things about an, uh, trading options is that it's probably the, tip of this trading nonlinear products is probably the tip of the spear as far as risk management understanding. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think it's, a uh, um, those, those, the ideas that come out, the ideas that come out of the like arbitrage options world are filled with lessons for how to think about risk that I think everybody can inherit. The context could be different, but the principles are worth studying. And, survival is basically about ex ante constraint uh you know that's how you survive that's how you survive all the you know it's 2020 i mean and the, honestly the options you know well a lot of them blew up but the options firms that look the options firms that have market maker blood by and large did very well do very well in those situations because they might get beat up like the nature of being any kind of a market maker is that when the world changes, you take a hickey right away. But your risk management rules allow you to recover. And now you are standing in this amazing environment that you can make all the money back. And I, I remember from the floor, you would walk in some days and the market will have done something nuts and you you start the day down in the, you're like in the hole, you know, three months worth of work, you're in the hole and you might make it back in the same day because that how bad it was is like at some point that risk was constrained and now you're standing there ready to make markets and you have to, you have to toss it out. Like, I know I took a big hickey today, three months of work out the window, but today we make, today we make hay. Like, yeah, and other guys are getting fully liquidated, right? And they're collecting that. And therefore, the spreads are massive. The vegas are huge. They're like the opportunities are massive. And yep. you are still standing yeah. and able to profit from those opportunities. Well, right? Yeah, if I understand correctly, something <laughs> that you haven't seen before happens, you get wiped out, or something that is completely unexpected happens. Once it does happen, you're back in your in your own turf. You know exactly yep. what's up. Yeah. You're, you're right. So that the first shock is terrible. What the hell happened to us after that? Get, get your bearings. I understand the playing field. Let's go make some money. Right. There's more more spreads than ever to do it. I would say um, related to this, as far as like what it's like to trade this stuff, you um, it's uh, your mindset slips into different modes and you have to you have to know how to turn certain modes on and off. What I mean by that 
when markets are kind of regular, I'm looking for good positions. I'm looking for um, like I'm trading to target levels of risk. And like I say, I'm going to accumulate the I want to I want to be long oil. I want to be long oil vol. I want to be short corn, corn vol. I want to add like I have an idea of like these are the things that I want. I have axes. However, when the when the world changes and we go into everything's in flux and some kind of something has changed that you might go out of that, you go out of that mode and say market maker mode. OK. No positions, no opinions. Today, I trade relatively flat by the end. Like I'm going to look and I'm going to look at the end of the day, how much Vega like, and that's something I would always watch. How much Vega did I buy today? How much Vega did I sell today? And what months, how much gamma, how much theta? In, in every month, I want to know what did I do today? And in certain modes, if I accumulated a position in a fast market kind of condition, I'm usually sad. So I know that I need to stay away from a position accumulation. So what happens is I buy, I think this is a good buy, starts to go against me. You know what? Uh, make sure that the world changed. Like maybe the thing that maybe I bought this and there's always a reason everything that I buy or sell, there's a reason. I know exactly what the reason is. I bought this because this is bid here, right? Like I sold this because this is, this, this, this is offered here. Like everything that I trade, I know exactly why I did it. And if I sold this here and then this thing that I, that I was offered here goes up to here, and this goes up here, I buy this back. I hate my trade now. I want, because this thing's now here. So I wanna buy this back. I have no problem locking in a loser. I have no problem if, as long as the reason for that trade has been refuted by the market. I might even go and say the other way. I'm gonna, now I wanna, now I wanna, uh, I sold this thing and I don't wanna buy it. Cause now I wanna buy this thing and sell this thing that I thought before was causing me to sell it. Now that thing's high and I wanna sell that. So. I will completely flip my position, say, because I know what I'm trading against and everything has a reason. I don't do a trade on an opinion. It's like the trader on a desk comes to you. Why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? You better, there better be a list of reasons. I said, this was offered here. This was bid there. Um, I'm seeing this flow here. That guy's going to like, I need to know the reasons, everything I do. This what's hard for me for investing is because I don't understand the reasons that well. Um, I understand the reasons for trading, but I don't understand the, you know, macro. I don't, I really don't understand the reason. I don't think I understand any of that. So, um, yeah, different, different. Mike. Yeah. Different context for sure. Mike, sorry. Yeah. I, you, you go, you had, let's, well, yeah, let's I just thought I, 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 yeah, I want to make sure we get to the, to the, to the point of where we are today. So we've tracked a long wow. way. We went from 2000 to 2022. We're we're sitting here today. You're now you're now stepped away from um, from the from the industry sort of for for a bit. But okay, yeah. you know, with all your skill and experience, what are you seeing today in that you know that lattice work that you were talking about? That mosaic of hey, these markets are normal. These are non-normal. How has that shifted in the last six months? It certainly feels like there has been a significant shift in regime of some kind. But I'm wondering, and, and I think the audience is wondering too. What are you seeing? What are you seeing in the in the vol markets? What are you seeing in different uh, pits, as it were, today versus six months ago versus the last three years? Yeah. Um, so I think it's going to be a disappointing answer because my answer is going to be this is a trading environment and I would not be taking positions. I want exposure 
to people that benefit from dislocations, from disorder. Uh, I want I want to be exposed to people that think like traders right now, not people that have opinions. That's how I feel today. That's uh, this is for 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 people that are sitting in seats that where they can trade things that are going this way and that way. This is a, an unbelievable environment. I don't know. And again, like maybe you guys could tell me, like, what is you know what kind of things can one buy? What are the exposures that one could have? that benefit from that, you know, like other than like buying maybe virtue stock or something like that. But it's like, that's the idea is like, I want to, I want to, I want, I would want exposure to people that are, um, you know, in a sense, like we, we have, uh, you know, in our personal um, money portfolio, whatever, like we allocate to, my wife is in this business too, to, uh, uh, on the investing side. And, you know, we allocate with private managers. I mean, that's, it, it, it's like people that kind of, you know, that we think can make money in environments like this, not all of it. Some of it, some of it is like, for honestly, some of it's probably like veiled beta ultimately, like it's kind of hard to get away from that. Right. But, um, but it's, it's, uh, it's just understanding that right now, um, I don't know anything about what's going on. Things feel really crazy to me. The real estate markets feel incredible uh, incredibly wild to me like i live in the bay area i see things here that are i mean sometimes i'm just like <laughs> scratching my head so i'm like how much money is out there like it feels infinite in in some ways and it's, and it's not you talk to realtors and you talk to it's like it, it 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 it's kind of freakish as far as like i've never seen anything like this COVID seems to have like blown something open. I think just like all you guys, like you guys see in the world crazy. I don't have any special insight into this. I just know that, you know, honestly, if I was trading, it's probably an amazing environment, especially because I was in commodities. I mean, yeah. it's- Yeah. I, we're, I, we're, I just real estate. At, we're, we're Canadians. Just so and I asked we have Adam- San Francisco real estate market for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I asked Adam <laughs> anyway, a couple of weeks ahead. ago to run, you know, the rolling, you, what was it? The diversification ratio or something like that it was the- the amount of unique bets that one can examine from the futures uh, markets, right? So you can actually find a way to, to see roughly how many unique bets there are. And what we went, I think, back to the 1990s, but the highest peaks were in the 2000s, in, okay. in the mid 2000s, right? These were er these were periods where there was high inflation, right? A prolonged multi-year bear markets, and things were breaking. There was chaos in the streets. There was wars. There was a bunch of of things that just we've forgotten as investors, just the, the proverbial we have forgotten as investors could happen. During mm -hmm. that decade, you had a massive amount of dispersion and therefore opportunities to make money on longs and shorts and, and the like. And so you, you look at the decade of 2000 and 2010, and what you identify is that index investing wasn't really that big a thing. Mm -hmm. You had Magellan Fund, you had in Canada, Eric Sprott making active equity selection. You know, all the active equity managers were killing it. All the CTAs were making double digit returns, 20, 30% annualized. You know, you had uh, Warren Buffett had, you know, an amazing decade right after that, uh, the tech crash. And so when there's dispersion, as you said, when there's chaos and there are people that are active managers trying to find those opportunities, it's a great time to to be in that space. Right. And then in the last decade, when you have benign inflation, 
and persistent positive growth shock. So when there's a lot of visibility and there's like the fog of war is kind of gone away, then you see the big winners, right? You see the fangs and everybody's just going to plow a bunch of money into those stocks. So growth stocks tend to do really, really well right before the chaos ensues. So I just think from your perspective, you're seeing it as a trader that I want somebody to take no position. I want, to, I want, to, I want them to take advantage of dispersion. You're totally right. But that goes down the, in my opinion, down the active ladder from equity selection to sector rotation to asset allocation to, to CTAs and you know, systematic global macro guys like us. We're seeing more opportunities than we've ever seen. And you saw it going back to the original chart that I asked Adam, you saw a lot of peaks in 2000 with a lot of bets. And then the last 10 years, kind of it's whittled down to very, very few bets really tough to make money and now there's uh, lots of bets all of a sudden that's gone spike that's and what's interesting too is that you know during calm markets there are more opportunities for dispersion um within equity markets and within credit markets but during times like these stock picking actually is there's less dispersion because as you know right better than most You've got correlations that are moving towards one within the equity markets, but across different markets, the correlations are breaking, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and there'll come a point where there's going to be, a, you know, a major liquidation event and everything's going to go down together like we do see from time to time that lasts a few, a, a few days or maybe a week or so, right? But yeah, at the moment, your intuition, I think, is, is great. Right. You want to you want active trading. You want lots of diversity in the things that you can trade because a variety of things are breaking at different times. And uh, so there's a large opportunity set for nimble traders across these global markets. Yeah, it's it's, like you said, I think it's like it's like I want agnostics to have the money right now. Yeah. 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 With with access to all the markets. Right, without without a laning or a preference, right? There's lots of stuff going on. There's lots of vol out there. There's lots of different directions it's going. Yeah. You don't you don't need to lug any uh, position. I've been waiting ten years to say that Vanguard. This is a time where Vanguard, you know, gives some of that those winnings back. But they're in active managers too now. They're putting out all these factor based yeah, ETFs, and God damn not, it, they haven't been that great. They're timing this right. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that that passive index, like this idea that passive investing, the way Americans see it, which is the S and P five hundred, it's going to be a rough go. Well, it's it's the same ebb and flow we saw. You know, Chris came in the market in two thousand. I came in like nineteen ninety. Japan was the rage. You know, it once something becomes broadly adopted as gospel across all the zeitgeist of the uh, general investing pop, it's not going to work. It's well, do you remember like last dollar goes was, in, man? <laughs> for me, it was BRIC, the BRIC funds, right? Brazil, sure. Russia, India, China, the commodity super cycle, yeah. right? The, uh, the, uh, peak oil. Remember that? All, like, yeah, peak oil. All that and then shale hits, peak, peak energy. And I mean, and yeah. the thing is 2000, right? You have a market peak in 2000. And then you look how what the dispersion was. What did other markets do? What did emerging markets do? What did gold do? I mean, there's yeah. massive outperformance. And I think, yeah. by the way, if you go back to 2000, gold still outperforms the S&P 500 at this moment in time. But, you know, whatever, no one cares. Um, <laughs> but then, then you fast forward to 2011, gold has its peak, its momentary peak. And, uh, you know, stocks are flat on their back in the next 10 years. What happens? Well, the opposite. Seem to move in these uh, 10 year uh, or decade like cycles where uh, things get unsettled for a while.
anyway, it's interesting. It's a very yeah, interesting yeah. place. It's going to be a fun decade. Yeah. Yeah. Rising rates haven't been a thing for months. a long time. Interest <laughs> rates actually go up? Right. <laughs> yeah, I kind of time thing. Can that even happen? <laughs> so I kind of timed quitting badly, but you know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain I timed. Come on, come on over. Come so on when over. when do you think? Hey, when do you think you're making the comeback, bro? When yeah. when are you gonna be? When are you yeah. gonna be like, oh, it's, I got too much free time now? Yeah, no, I I have a couple. I have a couple itches to scratch. Um, I don't. I'm just kind of interesting, like leaving. Um, I just don't want to. Uh, it's kind of weird, man. When I got into this business, like I didn't, I had, like I said, I was really naive. I didn't really know much. So coming into it, uh, it was like, they just, it just seemed like a pretty cool thing to do. I mean, I, you know, when I got into it, I was walking around, like I, I was interested in money and investing to some degree. Like I, I, I you know, in college, I, I was an economics major, which is, you know, it was a worthless effing major, but like the, the at least the way I studied it. And the, um, you know, and I was, in, I was interested in the idea of things like derivatives. And so I actually was interested in even in college, but um, the way I got the job was I was literally walking around a career fair and Sig had a booth. I was a, I was a uh, in a Cornell. So so I'm walking around the career fair, and uh, there was a guy named Pat at Sig, and he did recruiting there. And he had a booth, and it was no attention being paid to this booth. Everybody, you remember, like 1999, everybody wanted to be a banker. That was like, but yeah. you know, that was the hot shit. So everybody everybody was wearing suits at the career fair, and they want everybody wanted to go to be a banker. And there's this guy, he's standing there at this booth and he's got a deck of cards and dice. And he's just looking for somebody to talk to. And I'm walking by completely clueless. And I'm like, hey, what the heck is this about? What What's the name of that company? Susquehanna? What the heck is a Susquehanna? And he he's, I don't remember what he asked me, but he asked me like some kind of question related to like a, like a, like a, like a, like a probability kind of thing, whatever. And I'm like, I didn't get it right. And I was like, that's kind of cool. That was kind of neat question. I thought that was interesting. And he said, well, why don't you come? Why don't you come have a conversation? You know, okay. And I went there and I sat down and had this interview. And he asked me more questions like that. And I get them all wrong. And you're right. Uh, and, um, and I'm right. I, I realized I'm all wrong. But here's the thing. Blank piece of paper. To this day, I think probably maybe the most fortuitous sentence I ever said happened in that interview because I said to him, I, this is really cool. How could I get better at this? That was it. And he said, go read. I want you to go read David Sklansky's Getting the Best of It. And I wrote it down. I said, I'm going to get that book. And I walked out of that conversation. I went and I got the book. And he specifically told me the first chapter, read the first chapter. I read the first chapter and that book is getting the best of it is basically a treatise on the idea of edge in gambling. That's it. That's what the book is about. I read the, I read the first, I read the whole book and then they did an on-campus interviews later. He called me, he said, you can, you know, and come interview. Okay. I went there and I interviewed <laughs> and, and I, I, I struggled, but I was interested and I had read and I had demonstrated that I had read the book. So 
I walk out of there and I have no idea. And lo and behold, and like I said, they were hiring bodies then. Like they, they needed, they needed people. So I get the call and I got a second, I got a phone interview, more math questions. These I nailed. I get all the math. What was your background in undergrad? Econ. 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 I haven't taken, by the way, I haven't taken a math class since high school. I took a calculus BC. I haven't taken a math class since high school. I am, you know, completely ignorant of, uh, you know, I'm just trying it to learn. It wasn't econometrics. It was econ. No, it was econ. It was, you know what it was? Like, <laughs> it was those, like, a lot of blue booklets and write. And that was pretty, that was, like, I mean, like, my, my like, verbal scores in life were, like, very high. So I was good at bullshitting through college. And I would take all these classes where you would have to write, basically write stuff. And my colleague or no, my classmates or friends, whatever, like, like, uh, in, in college, they would be like, can you write this for me? Like, <laughs> like, like I would, so I, I felt pretty comfortable bullshitting, which is totally bullshit. There's no research, just making stuff up, but I would make stuff up and I could, was able to get good grades doing that. But then this stuff was like, man, I haven't really thought about math stuff in <laughs> since high school. And, uh, and then, so I learned that and then eventually like, then I got the questions right and I got better. And then, um, you know, I managed to get the job and, and, and that was it, but it was all pretty much because I feel like I said, I don't know how to do this, but I like it. Can you tell me how to get better at it? Um, that was, that. you can only connect the dots looking learn. backwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Learn. That's yeah. right. It's so true. It's like, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, we've taken up in almost two hours of your time, and I, I think we've. That's uh, a good place to end it too. It's yeah, a good lesson yeah. to end on for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I everyone appreciate having me on. This is cool. Like, and you made me feel really comfortable because I never really did stuff like this before. So this is this is this is pretty dope, man. Yeah, yeah you said you were nervous. Uh, you, you didn't seem nervous the entire time, mate. So this has been a lot of fun, and yeah. and thanks so much for sharing too. A lot yeah, of wisdom. Very, very entertaining stories. Very insightful. I can't wait. Yeah. We'll have you back again. Oh yeah, I know That's everybody crazy. who was waiting to talk about ball. We didn't yeah. much. Yeah, well, sorry guys. Next, Next time. time. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And where can everybody find you, Chris? Just at the end here, let oh. remind them of all your your places where you exist, your blog, your newsletter, Twitter, all that stuff. Yeah. So I mean, you could follow me. I'm at Chris Abdelmasia, and um, everything. Uh, all you can. I have like a portal where everything I've ever written on the internet is there. All my options writing, all that stuff, it's all indexed. And then I write a weekly uh, Moon Tower newsletter that sometimes talks about finance and sometimes just me riffing about whatever. But you get like- Oh, it's exceptional. Oh, yeah. I love it when you off-road. What's that? I said it's, it's yeah. exceptional and I really love it when you off-road. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. It's just, I'm just, I'm trying to figure things out in public. I find that that's a pretty good way of living my life these days. So yeah. um but my Twitter uh, has links to everything. So that's probably the best place. Just go there. Excellent. That's yeah, awesome. That's fantastic. I just also want to mention that next week, um, Meb Faber is allegedly going to be on the show. Uh, so <laughs> Meb so Faber scheduled. That. So 50 -50. If, he's, if he's not surfing, he'll, he may or may not be here. Um, and on May 6th, we've got Vincent Deloard uh, talking about the inflationary environment, uh, how to navigate that. So some, some more really good shows coming up. Uh, so tune in, make sure to like and share. So we get more guests like Chris on the show and uh, Chris, thanks so much, man. Really fun. Hopefully we get to raise a glass in person sometime in the near future. 
And thanks to everyone who showed up today and commented and asked questions. And we hope you show up in the future. Thanks, Al. Thank you guys very much. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.